Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's argument before the Supreme Court in a case known as Chevron Deference, which is being heard after 40 years in which government agencies were given deference to expert rulings on public health, the environment, and consumer protection issues, etc. But now an ideological right-wing court appears to want to decide these critical matters themselves. Joining us to discuss today's hearing is Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program. The co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, she also served as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. Then we'll speak with James Goodwin, a senior policy analyst with the Center for Progressive Reform. He previously worked as a legal intern for the Environmental Law Institute and Ecologic Group Incorporated and has published a number of articles on human rights and environmental law and policy appearing in the Michigan Journal of Public Affairs and the New England Law Review. We'll discuss this power grab underway by bitter, angry Supreme Court justices in the thrall of billionaire and corporate power about to rule on whether citizens have any say in how long they live and what kind of world they live in. Then finally, with the Biden administration on the brink of being further bogged down in Middle East wars, we'll speak with Christopher Preble, the senior fellow and director of the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. Prior to joining the Stimson Center, he served as co-director of the Atlantic Council's New American Engagement Initiative. He's the author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. And he co-edited with John Mueller, A Dangerous World, Threat Perceptions, and U.S. National Security. And we'll discuss his article at the Stimson Center, Testing Assumptions About U.S. Foreign Policy in 2024. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also served as Counsel for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jody Freeman. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, you were listening to the oral arguments today before the Supreme Court. 
in the case brought by uh, fishermen and essentially challenging the Commerce Department's National Marine Fishery Service, uh, their ability to regulate uh, fisheries, and particularly, you know, there's obviously cases of overfishing, etc. But nevertheless, this group of what appear to be beleaguered fishermen have a lot of legal heft behind them with alumni from the Coke Network representing them, and they've got this case before the Supreme Court. And uh, they're really basically about to, well, we don't know exactly whether they're going to get rid of the Chevron deference or gut it, but this is happening after 40 years of what, I guess, would you call it settled law, uh, Jody? Yes. Let me give a little context to what you said. This is, in fact, a challenge to a fisheries rule, but underneath it is a much deeper attack on the administrative state. So, It's really a coordinated, uh, very strategic effort to get in front of the Supreme Court a case that will allow the court, the the idea here is the petitioners want the court to go so far as to overturn a very longstanding precedent that says regulatory agencies have some flexibility to interpret the laws they administer. And the reason they want to undo this precedent is because they think it empowers the administrative state to impose expensive rules on them. So, yes, the case is about a fishing regulation, and it really stems from a 1970s law you mentioned, Ian, the uh, Magnuson-Stevens Fisheries Act. And that law allows for the federal government to regulate the vessels that are in these fragile fisheries. So that's a longstanding thing. But what's happened is that the federal government has required the private vessels to pay for the daily fees charged by these onboard monitors. So that's the issue in the case. They don't like this rule. Um, And even though it's never been implemented and it hasn't cost anybody anything, they've teed up a challenge to it. But what they're really trying to do is get the court to bite, get the court to bite on this bigger question of how much room should agencies have when they go to implement regulatory laws. And what they really want is for the court to say, look, these agencies really don't have discretion. It's for us, the courts, to decide. And the reason the petitioners want to shift that power back to the courts is they think, frankly, they'll get a better deal from the conservative justices who now have a supermajority on the Supreme Court. So is this another case of Supreme Court shopping like Citizens United and the Heller decision turning the Second Amendment on its head? Well, I think it's part of a clear agenda that some groups who are, some interest groups and organizations who are opposed really to a robust federal government uh, are pursuing. I think they believe they have a sympathetic Supreme Court, a court that is pro-business, anti-regulatory. I think this is their theory, and that if they continue to bring these challenges, they'll have a very sympathetic hearing in the Supreme Court. And this term in the Supreme Court, the, the court has heard numerous cases now of this type. There are several cases before it asking it to go all the way to a kind of extreme anti-regulatory position to really drain the executive branch of its traditional authority. And if the court takes all of these cases and goes to the outer limits, it will wreak havoc across the administrative state. So there's a lot at stake here in what seem on the surface like pretty boring agency cases. They're really incredibly important and and, um, exciting in a way in the sense that uh, there's a lot at stake. 
Well, the chief strategist for the Trump administration, Stephen Bannon, is the one who coined the expression to deconstruct the regulatory state. And is he driving this? I mean, is this extraordinary to think that this fellow has that kind of influence? But well, uh, I, I think it's I think it's bigger than him. I, look, I think that uh, any precedent, any legal principles that are seen to empower uh, the federal government are at risk because I think there's a lot of antipathy toward the federal government, and there's really no great defender of it on the Supreme Court who's in the conservative majority. Now, there are real defenders of administrative regulation, you know, in the more liberal minority of the Supreme Court, justices like Justice Elena Kagan, who is an outspoken advocate for the good that federal agencies do when they implement public health laws, uh, food and drug laws, financial protection laws, consumer protection laws. She's really the only voice um, that is quite outspoken to say, look, Congress passed all these statutes in the public interest, all these laws that protect us, uh, protect the environment, protect public health, protect the food and drug supply. And these agencies have been given the job of implementing them. And we should be humble, we the courts, and let those agencies do their job as long as they do so reasonably. And that's been the tradition. That's what this precedent we're talking about, Chevron, that case, that's what it stands for. And Justice Kagan is sort of this powerful voice, but She's in the minority, and it looks like the majority of the court doesn't feel that way about being humble in the face of uh, Congress delegating power to agencies. They feel like they should be the deciders. But is is Justice Kagan then standing up for you and me and every other citizen in this country? In other words, you're talking about public health. You're talking about what we eat, the air we breathe how long we live and what kind of world we live in. Yeah, I mean, at bottom, this is really about your view of whether the government does some good or not. You know, it's, it's pretty simple in the end. And, and the idea here is that we really don't have much of a voice for the good that regulation accomplishes. You know, the fact that the air is cleaner than it was 40, 50 years ago, the fact that waters don't uh, erupt into flames because of pollution, uh, the fact that the meat supply isn't contaminated with body parts, which actually it was at the dawn of the Food and Drug Administration. Um, we, we tend to take these things for granted, and there's this sort of deep visceral reaction to the federal government. And I think that's kind of what's at play in these cases. And, you know, you see the petitioners in this case, you see the challengers to the fisheries rule uh, putting out this iconography of the beleaguered, weathered, hardworking fishermen. And I have no doubt that um, fishing is very hard work, but this is really a kind of facade to put a face on a deeply conservative attack on the administrative state. So in terms of the arguments then, and after all, Chevron deference started in, during the Reagan administration in 1984, just after Neil Gorsuch's mother was fired and she was a zealous anti-regulator, uh, but a, who apparently was too zealous even for the Reagan administration. Her son was apparently very bitter about what happened to his mother, and he seemed to dominate today's discussions, did he not? Well, that's a, a fascinating little biographical detail. I, I, I don't like to jump into psychoanalysis, so I'll leave that one alone. But there's no doubt that 
Justice Gorsuch dating to the time when he was a 10th Circuit judge, you know, on the lower court before he was elevated to the Supreme Court, he has railed against this idea of Chevron deference that you're talking about, which is really just the principle that agencies should be given some latitude to interpret the laws they administer. Uh, He railed against that idea uh, ever since being a 10th Circuit judge, and he's continued it on the Supreme Court. And in today's oral argument, he made his antipathy very plain. He basically said, look, we, the court, should decide all these questions of law. And, you know, what that translates into in the real world is a bunch of fine-grained questions like which drugs are safe and effective? How do you define critical habitat for endangered species? How do you define what an unfair or deceptive marketing practice is that takes advantage of consumers? There are many, many questions about how to define legal terms that are embedded in these laws. And when the agencies go to enforce them, they simply have to give them some meaning. And they use their expertise and they consult stakeholders because they must do that as part of the regulatory process. And they can do research and they can bring economic expertise, technological expertise to bear. And that is why they are better to um, answer these kinds of fine-grained legal and policy questions as long as they do so reasonably. That's what the precedent says. Agencies are also far more accountable than courts in the sense that if Congress doesn't like what the agencies can do, do, sorry, if, if Congress doesn't like what the agencies do, Congress can defund them. Congress can hold hearings and ask them to explain. Congress can amend the law. So it's not like Congress is powerless to oversee these agencies. And they also answer to the president. Executive branch agencies are headed by political appointees that the president names. So they're much more accountable than courts that have none of these tools, none of these resources, and none of this expertise. And Justice Gorsuch seems to think that in every instance, the courts are the deciders, which really means the Supreme Court which really tells you something about his view of the Supreme Court's role in society. So if you have the minority of three justices standing up for the public in terms of public health, the air and water and food, et cetera, that we've discussed, uh, and then on the other side you've got six people, are they, in effect, standing up for corporate power? What, is I, I that, what are they standing that... for? I don't think it's that simple. I think they're standing up for their own authority, frankly. I I, I think they have a view that says um, Congress needs to specify every little thing agencies can do, and otherwise agencies can't do them. Um, And agencies can't read into the gaps and silences and fill those gaps and silences with their own interpretation. I think they have a theory that, that that's wrong and that that isn't consistent with the separation of powers. But what it means in practice, because Congress can't answer every question, Congress can't anticipate every legal issue that will arise. It can't imagine how these statutes will be implemented in a month or a year or 10 years. Because it doesn't have perfect foresight, there's always going to be some discretion. You have to give agencies like the SEC and the FDA and the EPA to interpret these laws over time. And so in practice, what Justice Gorsuch and some of the other justices are saying is, we don't trust these agencies. We don't think they're the right body to interpret these laws over time, and we should do it ourselves. That aggrandizes the Supreme Court. It diminishes the executive branch. And they know Congress is dysfunctional and is very unlikely to pass a set of updated statutes, which leaves policymaking power with them. So why not 
describe then this as a power grab then? I mean, are these people really more qualified than the experts that work for the EPA and for the fisheries and for all of the other agencies? Uh, and I mean, we've had, we saw the war against Dr. Fauci during COVID, what? but he was right. And I- Trump telling us that we should drink bleach and put a UV light up, uh, whatever, you know, he was wrong. Well, I think the way you framed it, Ian, is the right way to think about it, which is who should decide. And while, of course, I think courts have a crucial role in interpreting law, of course, that is their main job. There are some questions in the interstices of these federal statutes that really ought to be entrusted to the expert agencies. And, And a humble court, a court that respected the executive branch, would stick with the precedent, the long established precedent that gives them some flexibility. And I think this court is just not prepared uh, to let agencies have that flexibility. And I do think many people would describe it as a power grab. So since you've heard the arguments today, Jody, what are the two possibilities? Are they that they'll gut the Chevron deference altogether or will they get rid of it altogether? I mean, are those the two possible outcomes? Yeah, I think I think for sure the court is going to do something. Um, it didn't take this case to reinforce the uh, tremendous value of the administrative state. It, it took the case to cabinet and limit it. And I think the question is how far will they go? I think in oral argument, the chief justice was quite quiet. Um, he is an institutionalist. I don't think he likes upheaval and radical change. I think that you know if he had company he might be able to find a way to just limit this doctrine of deference to maybe give agencies less room, less flexibility. But the colleagues on the court today, Justice Gorsuch, Alito, Justice Thomas, certainly all said they were prepared to overturn Chevron. And Justice Kavanaugh, whose views were not perfectly clear before oral argument, he made them pretty clear. I think he'd be, seems like he'd be very comfortable overturning it. So the big mystery to me is Justice Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, before she joined the court, hadn't written much about this set of issues. She really today left some question about how far she wants to go. So it's always hard to predict outcomes based on oral argument. But I guess I would say it was concerning. The argument was concerning, and I would not be surprised if the court wound up overturning it. And, of course, we had an earlier decision, didn't we not, West Virginia versus EPA, that doesn't uh, all go well. Well, that was another case in which the court basically said, hey, these agencies are trying to do big, important things. They're trying to use the Clean Air Act to deal with climate change. And we think it's such a major question how they're approaching this regulation of power plant uh, pollution that we are giving them no deference. So that was a little chipping away at this idea and saying there's a there's a set of questions that are just too big a deal, and we're not going to let the agencies uh, have any room to maneuver there. This would be a sort of second kind of statement of that kind, um, and I think the court's just in you know systematically chipping away at the flexibility agencies have. And when you think to yourself, well, who cares? You know, why does this matter? It's a bunch of government bureaucrats, and it's a high-level court stuff, and it's complicated. And why should we care on the ground? The reason we should care is. You know, day-to-day things we rely on, um, again, like clean water, clean air, safe food and drug supply, consumer protection from fraud and deception in the marketplace, financial regulation to avoid financial disasters. All this depends on a capable federal government that's able to make policy calls on a day-to-day basis. 
And what, what overturning Chevron would do is basically take out a working principle that the lower courts have relied on. They know how to approach these cases. They know that if the statute isn't clear, they generally will defer to the agency that implements it. That's a good recipe. Keeps the federal courts from getting into all kinds of meddlesome issues and tying the agencies in knots. So I think if, if they uh, jettison Chevron and they don't explain what to do instead, how to handle agency decisions instead, we'll be left with a mess. And it will invite a bunch of litigation over everything the agencies do. And, of course, I think that's what petitioners want. I think they want to tie these agencies in knots of litigation and prevent the federal government from operating. And that will prove their argument, which is that the federal government doesn't work. Well, Jody Freeman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jody Freeman, who's the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also serves as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the power grab underway by bitter, angry Supreme Court justices in the thrall of billionaire and corporate power about to rule on whether citizens will have any say in how long they live and what kind of world they live in. Don't go near the water Don't you think it's sad What's happened to the water Our water's going bad Oceans, rivers, lakes and streams Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Goodwin, a senior policy analyst with the Center for Progressive Reform. He previously worked as a legal intern for the Environmental Law Institute and Ecologic Group Incorporated, and has published a number of articles on human rights and environmental law and policy, appearing in the Michigan Journal of Public Affairs and the New England Law Review. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Goodwin. Thank you. So the Supreme Court is hearing the case known as the Chevron deference today, and this is after 40 years in which agencies had given deference to experts uh, ruling on public health, the environment, consumer protection, etc. But now this ideological right-wing court appears to want to decide these critical matters for themselves, and the people that have brought the case forward are all on one way or another, on the Koch Network's payroll or a part of their alumni. So am I right as a citizen then, James, to be concerned about whether or not we as citizens will have any further say in what kind of air we breathe, what food we eat, how long we live, and what kind of world we live in? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, a, a realistic um, consequence of this decision. Um, I mean, it's funny you bring up the, the, the origins of this case. Um, bear in mind that when Chevron was decided, uh, that was a Reagan deregulatory rule that it upheld, right? There's nothing inherently pro-regulatory or anti-regulatory about Chevron deference. It's neutral in that sense. But what isn't neutral is what this current court is trying to accomplish, which is to shift 
decision-making power away from agencies, away from Congress to itself. And basically what, when you consider what's happened in the last 40 years, it's that the center of power is for, political power for conservatives have shifted from the White House. It's shifted from Congress to the judiciary. Going forward for the next 30, 40 years, that's where uh, conservative political power is going to rest. So, of course, they're going to use this decision to, to shift policymaking power to the courts. And that, that's effectively uh, what's going to happen here. And what that practically means for all of us is uh, public health protections of any kind, um, consumer protections of any kind are all going to get slammed shut uh, when they run into uh, the conservative federal judiciary. So is this a consequence then of a, the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court and much of the judiciary, thanks to uh, Leonard Leo, who has basically chosen, I think, six of these and nine justices, handpicked them along with an enormous number of, of uh, members of the federal judiciary? Yeah, and, and it extends just beyond seating the judges, right? It's how how these cases are created in the first place. Uh, if you read um, the um, the media coverage of this decision, they they present these very sympathetic portrayals of these uh, these beleaguered fishermen. Oh, aren't they sympathetic plaintiffs? Um, these poor guys are just trying to make a living, and here's big government coming along. Um, making their jobs impossible. That's not an accident that these, that these are the plaintiffs, right? Um, this case was carefully uh, designed. The facts were carefully designed to raise this, this obscure, uh, complex legal issue. So it's, it's um, from the cases that are brought, how they're funded, and then the judges that eventually hear it, all of that is part of an overarching uh, conservative strategy. Um, and if it wasn't being deployed to such nefarious ends, you'd almost have to admire it. Uh, it's just such a comprehensive, um, uh, diabolical strategy. And you can, of course, it's got the the Koch brothers or Charles Koch's fingerprint. His network are, are basically most of the lawyers involved here, one way or another. And yeah, again, it's uh, it goes back to the point that I was making about plutocratic capture of the Supreme mm -hmm. Court, and it's pretty clear that at least two members of the Supreme Court are completely in the thrall of billionaires and corporate power. That is uh, Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. But isn't it also true now that Neil Gorsuch, whose mother was at the EPA at the time of the Chevron deference decision, and she was actually proved to be too zealous, an anti-regulatory zealot, for even the Reagan administration, and they got rid of her finally in 1983. And her son at the time, then 15-year-old uh, Neil Gorsuch, was apparently furious that this happened to her, and he's been very bitter about it ever since and felt that she should never have resigned. I thought that in the judiciary, the judges are supposed to be judicious, and the definition of being judicious is to be not to be ideological, angry and bitter, but to be thoughtful and open-minded. Well, yeah, I mean, you would think that, right? Uh, but, I mean, there's, there's more to the Gorsuch story in this. Uh, the way he literally um, auditioned for his seat on the Supreme Court is when he was a, a Court of Appeals judge. Um, 
in this, you know, rather routine case, he wrote this absolutely scathing and uh, uh, gratuitous, right? It was totally unnecessary, uh, concurring opinion, dismantling uh, Chevron deference. He was basically signaling to Trump, hey, you put me on the court. This is what I'm going to do to Chevron deference. Uh, and, you know, this, and so listening to the oral arguments today, it's clear that he has this, you know, decades old um, uh, uh, chip on his shoulder about Chevron deference. Uh, he could barely hide his contempt for the decision and for the administrative state in general. Um, and clearly that was what was motivating his questions, his position on this case. And, you know, what that essentially does in my mind is it illustrates why we should not be uh, shifting more power to judges as this case would do, because they, they're human beings. Uh, they have political preferences. And what this decision essentially does is gives them carte blanche to act on those uh, political preferences. It, it, it removes an important um, structural barrier against uh, judicial activism. Um, and the behavior that was on display today from Justice Gorsuch illustrated more than almost anything else, any argument that was raised by the uh, uh, Solicitor General, why we need Chevron deference in the first place. And Neil Gorsuch was the only Supreme Court justice during the COVID pandemic who refused to wear a mask. But when you mentioned uh, his auditioning for the Supreme Court, my understanding is that... Um, Neil Gorsuch auditioned on the case known as the frozen truck driver case, where a truck driver's rig had broken down in the dead of winter, and he left the rig in order to get help. The alternative would be for him to stay with the rig and freeze to death. He chose to not freeze to death, and Gorsuch ruled against him based upon the fact that he should have done what the corporation required of him. Is that accurate summary of that case? That, that is a case I'm familiar with. I forget if the, the, the same cases or not. But again, you know, here in uh, Loper, Bright, and Relentless, we have these very sympathetic defendants getting all these uh, crocodile tears from, from the conservative justices, but arguably an even more sympathetic uh, um, uh, litigant uh, and this truck driver getting no such sympathy from the judges, right? Again, just illustrating why uh, judges cannot be trusted with all the power that uh, the elimination of Chevron would give them. So is was there anything in the hearings today that give you any comfort? I mean, obviously, you've got a three-vote minority there, and, the, and their rulings, if you read them, their dissents are always well-reasoned and extremely accurate, but they're meaningless, right? Because you've got this right-wing juggernaut that just steamrolls over them, right? Yeah. Um, essentially, what we're look like the best-case scenario today is that um, Chevron deference be preserved in some manner, but like additional safeguards be instituted on how it's applied. But that's like the soft landing we're looking for the worst case scenario. So that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario would be for the court to find that uh, Chevron deference uh, is, uh, is unconstitutional, that it violates like separation of powers principles. So like good news is I didn't hear a lot of appetite for going down that road. 
Um, you know, there might be Alito who is uh, quiet, relatively quiet today, may end up there, and he's probably the most likely to, to land there. Uh, Thomas probably as well. But I think where you could come down is Chevron getting overturned, but not on constitutional grounds. So in theory, Congress could come back and uh, codify Chevron. So there would be like a, a, a happy ending potentially there. But the, the, the best case scenario is that Chevron is preserved in some form, even if uh, its application is significantly limited. And I think that's one of those is the two most likely scenarios. I did hear questions about what kind of safeguards the court could put on the future application of Chevron, which leads me to believe that th there's some appetite even among the conservative judges for going that route. Uh, so there's some optimism for that. But you also heard from people like Gorsuch saying, oh, we've tried that. And, you know, the lower courts don't listen to us. You know, there's what are we going to do about those undisciplined lower courts? We just have to take Chevron away from them or else they're going to keep abusing it. So I think that's going to be kind of the nature of the debate uh, behind the scenes is whether and to what extent safeguards on Chevron will actually work. And if, you know, there are five judges, uh, conservative judges who agree that they won't work. That's it for Chevron. Bye-bye. So you mentioned uh, Alito and Thomas clearly voting to get rid of Chevron altogether. What about Gorsuch? Would you lump him in with those two? Yeah, I think so. But he did answer, or he did, he was arguably the most uh, vocal of the justices today. And he did ask some questions um, about, you know, whether some um line drawing can be done, but he was also pessimistic about, you know, if you, the Solicitor General would say, like, let's get some safeguards on there, let's give more guidance to lower courts how to apply Chevron, and um, Gorsuch would, you know, basically respond, we've tried that, and the lower courts didn't listen to us, um, so what, what, what more can we do? Um, so he, he did, he was willing to entertain discussions about um, putting constraints on future application of Chevron. But um, if you go based strictly on his past writing, I got to lump him in with um, uh, willing to overturn Chevron. Whether he makes it a constitutional issue or not, it's, it's, it's an open question. So in other words, the choices are they'll either gut Chevron or get rid of it altogether. Yes. The, yeah. I mean, there's a small possibility, right, that... Um, cooler heads prevail and that Chevron in its current form survives. I significantly doubt that. Um, but that would be like the Nirvana um, outcome, and uh, I, I don't see that happening. But the cooler heads, at least the ones that we're told, are not total right-wing ideologues in the thrall of billionaires and corporate power, are the Chief Justice and, uh, and, and Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, and what what did you glean from them today? Um, I was listening to a stream, so it wasn't always clear who was speaking. But I don't, I didn't hear a lot from Kavanaugh. I didn't hear a lot from Chief Justice Roberts, and it really does become like a, a numbers game on on the uh, on the right on the right wing judges how they actually come down because at the end of the day they have to find four votes in favor of something to outweigh the three. Democratic appointed uh, justices votes. And, you know, I see that as being kind of the dynamic that drives how they resolve this. So I don't think they get four votes for a constitutional 
uh, decision. So that's out. So then the the question becomes, how far can they go in gutting Chevron and have four votes lined up behind it? And, you know, I see three votes going very far, right? Your Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. The question is, is how far is uh, Barrett willing to go? How far is Kavanaugh willing to go? And how far is the Chief Justice willing to go? Uh, if you look strictly based upon their writings, Kavanaugh and Roberts are very skeptical, if not outright hostile to Chevron. So that doesn't give me a lot of hope. Barrett is kind of a question mark, but relying on her pretty strict conservative and small government pedigree, I, I would have to say that she would find a lot of willingness to go pretty far in either gutting or overturning Chevron. Right. I don't well, know. I mean, I didn't even mention. It, I, did, I somehow forgot her <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the yeah. in the mathematical calculation I was doing. And then, of course, you, we know that Amy Coney Barrett is incredibly religious and has a whole bunch yeah. of children. You'd wonder. You'd want to ask yourself, Amy, what about your kids and grandkids? What kind of air do you want them to breathe? What kind of f- food do you want them to eat? You know, yeah. what kind of health, what kind of lives are they going to live? What kind of world are they going to live in? I mean, those are the okay. basic questions. Nobody talks about that, right? That's too personal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's just it. It's, you know, you come back to those sympathetic uh, fishermen, right? Um, there's any number of cases that will, it could be decided in the future on Chevron deference that would, that would benefit them. You know, on balance, those fishermen will do a lot better in a world where Chevron survives. Um, you know, the, 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 the media uh, reports on the case don't discuss that. They're focused on this one particular case. But when you take the totality of all those future cases, those guys do a lot better in a world with Chevron than they do without. Uh, and same is true of Justice uh, Barrett's kids. Same is true of uh, Justice Roberts' kids, Chief Justice Roberts' kids. Right. And of course, the reason that there is oversight of fisheries in this country is to stop the overfishing, which gets rid of the entire species of fish in the first place, which almost happened with the Atlantic cod. So that's what it's all about. So I thank you for joining us, uh, James Goodwin. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with James Goodwin, who's a senior policy analyst with the Center for Progressive Reform. He previously worked as a legal intern for the Environmental Law Institute and Ecologics Group Incorporated and has published a number of articles on human rights, environmental law and policy, appearing in the Michigan Journal of Public Affairs and the New England Law Review. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back testing assumptions about U.S. foreign policy as the Biden administration appears to be on the brink of, of being bogged down further in Middle East wars. Excuse me, mister, but is the natural oil in the sea and the pollution in the air, mister? Whose could that be? So excuse me, mister, but I... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Preble, who's a senior fellow and director of the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. 
Prior to joining the Stimson Centre, he served as co-director of the Atlantic Council's New America Engagement Initiative. He's the author of four books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse, and How We Can Recover, and he co-edited with John Mueller, A Dangerous World, Threat Perception, and U.S. National Security. And he is a contributor to a new report at the Stimson Center, Testing Assumptions About U.S. Foreign Policy in 2024. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Preble. Great. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Christopher. And you argue that history teaches us that foreign policy does not necessarily move elections. And you bring up the case of George H.W. Bush versus Bill Clinton in 1992. And after George H.W. Bush's successful prosecution of the war first Gulf War and ejecting Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, his approval ratings were at 89%. But then, what, six months later, he lost the election. So that's the case of how a successful war in the Middle East, uh, if you can use that word successful, was prosecuted. But what about unsuccessful ones? And what's happening now? Is that nobody can say what's going on in terms of U.S. Um, military action in the Middle East is necessarily successful. That's right. So it, it's, I mean, we, we remember the 92 election because of Bill Clinton's line from the Bill Clinton, from Clinton's campaign, it's the economy, stupid. And it was a reminder that even at what was seen at the time as a, a very successful military operation um, in, a, in a very short amount of time, uh, George H.W. Bush's approval had basically cratered. Um, and it, it there was a sense that he he had been distracted by his foreign adventures and uh, at the expense of of the American people and the American economy. I think Clinton capitalized on that in 92. When you have a similar scenario can play out when there is a foreign policy setback or what's seen as a foreign policy failure. But the concern is always what is it? How does it relate to the domestic economy? Um, what does it mean for people's lives you know, at home? Um, and so that's why the conventional wisdom holds that foreign policy doesn't move elections. Generally speaking, foreign policy doesn't move elections. Um, and the polls usually show this. The polls usually, when, when people are asked an open-ended question about what they care about the most, foreign policy usually polls very low or it doesn't even register at all. Um, the economy is always consistently the top concern. There was a poll, though, taken uh, early this year uh, by AP and uh, their uh, polling partner, and it, it found surprisingly that the second leading concern, or at least Americans were asked what they want the U.S. government to focus on in 2024, and the second leading concern was foreign policy. So what, what all that suggests to me is that even though the economy is still uh, the most important concern, um, foreign policy seems to be a major concern in 2024, unlike in um, in some recent elections. Well, you also quote in your article this November CBS YouGov poll where 49% of respondents believe that a Biden victory would increase the chances of the United States becoming involved in a war. And of course, now it's actually happening, whereas <laughs> yes. 43% believed that a Trump victory made U.S. involvement less likely. And in the same poll, 47% thought Trump's policies would increase peace and stability, 
with only 31% held that opinion of a second Biden term. Now, I don't know how to interpret that because the only reason that Trump would end the war in Ukraine is that he would capitulate to Putin, who may well be pulling the strings. And, uh, you know, he doesn't know the difference between foreign policy and a photo op standing next to Xi Jinping or next to Kim, Kim, Kim Jong-un. Jong-un is, you know, I mean, it's, it's just embarrassing to believe. So I don't know what that says. I mean, apart from the fact that maybe we've, we've become an idiocracy. Well, I think that I think there is concern among the American people about the the ongoing conflicts and the danger of the United States becoming drawn more deeply into those conflicts. Obviously, the United States is involved in the war in Ukraine in terms of uh, arming Ukrainians um, and and is also involved in the in the Gaza war because it's a primary provider of, of weapons to Israel. But there's still a lot more that the United States could be doing up to and including actual involved, you know, U.S. military personnel um, fighting in these wars. And I think that's the overarching concern that people have is that are we is this merely the first of, of several steps or, or are we midway through a cycle uh, process whereby U.S. military personnel actually get drawn in so far? That hasn't happened. And I think that uh, there is a there is a sense, perhaps, that Donald Trump's rhetoric surrounding America first and a, and a skepticism of U.S. foreign wars mean that he is less likely to allow that to happen. Now, as I point out in the article, he did lots of other things when he was president that also risked the United States being drawn into war. Um, just at the at the eleventh hour, he you know he he chose to back down. So, for example, he, when he killed Qasem Soleimani, the senior Iranian general, you know, that brought the United States and Iran very close to war, um, ultimately didn't tip over into a direct conflict. But there's always that danger. Um, at, meanwhile, President Biden is dealing with several ongoing active conflicts in which the United States is involved. And so I think that explains partly uh, the concern of, of some Americans that uh, the United States might be dragged in uh, even against our, our wishes or against our interests. Well, Christopher, yesterday I spoke with a journalist in Erbil, northern Iraq, in Iraqi mm-hmm. Kurdistan, and uh, he was describing, you know, an Iranian missile attack on a, a building that had a businessman in it that the IRGC thought said was a Israeli spy nest. Right. And then uh, they also deployed drones against this U.S. base at the Erbil airfield, which the, they shot these munitions-loaded drones down, but. They had they been successful, U.S. troops would have been killed. I mean, Correct. You, you can't right. say we're not engaged. We're there, Correct. right? Yes, fifty-seven thousand, right. I think. How many? How many people do we have in the Middle East? I believe. Well, many, many tens of thousands. Although the exact number has been sort of shielded from view for several years. Actually, the Trump administration stopped reporting on U.S. troop deployments, which was a routine sort of quarterly report, and the Biden administration hasn't started it up again. So that's another one of my gripes with, with both both Trump and Biden administration. Right. I, actually, yeah. no. I've got a, a graph here that says there are 57,000 personnel in the Middle East, 12,500 in the Eastern Mediterranean, 3,500 in Jordan, 900 in Syria, 2,000 in Iraq, 10,000 in Kuwait, 4,500 in Bahrain, 10,000 in Qatar, 5,000 in the UAE, 2,500 in Saudi Arabia, 4,500 in the Red Sea, and 1,200 in the Arabian Sea and the Gulf. So, mm, wow. So, That's a lot. 
<laughs> <laughs> that is a lot. But let me be a contrarian here for a minute, if I can, Christopher, and then make the case, the opposite case, in terms of how foreign policy affects U.S. elections. I think you can make the case that, in effect, the U.S. does not control its own political destiny, because in 1968, an obscure Palestinian killed Bobby Kennedy and, in many ways, ensured the election of Richard Nixon in 1980, the Reagan team made a secret deal with uh, the Ayatollahs to hold the hostages, which cost Jimmy Carter his second term. And then in uh, 2004, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden certainly affected the, the race between George W. Bush and John Kerry. And now you could make the case, I hope it's not true, that Hamas and Benjamin Netanyahu are now whipsawing the U.S. again and they may cost Biden a second term and bring back Trump. Uh, well, you're, you're right that, you know, the United States as a, you know, we're, we're a, a global actor. We are we are we have in, involvement and in interests all over the world. And so you're right. There, there's always this potential for, um, you know, opportunistic spoilers to to make uh, a U.S. president look look bad um, again, though. If, if the U.S. economy was going very, very strong, or more accurately, if Americans believed that the U.S. economy was going very, very strong, because it actually is going quite well, but, but the perception is different, that people don't have a perception of a, of a strong economy, then I think then that opens up a politician like President Biden to other, uh, other concerns. But, but generally speaking, economic concerns are the most pressing. I think what's different about 2024 is that there are these ongoing conflicts at, which the United States is not, it, it, you know, is not as deeply involved as it could be. And there's quite a bit of concern that we will, in fact, become more deeply involved in 2024. And so I do think that's a vulnerability for, for President Biden. So what does Biden do or what should he do if Netanyahu really does want to bring Trump back, which many analysts say is his agenda. And we know that he has to continue that war. The longer, the longer that war goes on in Gaza, the longer he stays in office. He's, he's, he's polling right. at about 15% approval. Right. Right. So, you know, and he's a pretty cynical guy. And we've had apparently Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense, has apparently been talking to Israeli, his Israeli counterpart, warning them not to provoke Hezbollah in Lebanon to provoke right. a wider war. And now you've got the Houthis firing missiles at shipping in the Red Sea. In the, so what should Biden be doing? I mean, I guess you can't ignore what Biden calls the reckless behavior of the Houthis. Right. And, and the, the, re the reckless behavior of the Houthis is connected uh, to the ongoing war in Gaza. Uh, they were not attacking shipping prior to October of last year. Um, now, it, it may be the case, that there, and, and it certainly is the case, that they have lots of other grievances, but it seems to me that these things are connected. And, and that, too, is a concern, that, that the war in Gaza will not be contained to Gaza. That it, you, know, you cited the, the, the fear of it escalating into, into Lebanon. Um, it's, I would argue that it already has escalated in, uh, in, the, in the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea you know, with the Houthi attack. So, so I think that um, what President Biden uh, could do to try to uh, shore up his political standing uh, with respect to foreign policy is to 
much more assertively and aggressively try to bring the conflict to an end. But as you know, he only has limited um, uh, leverage to do that. And and given that, as you po also point out, Netanyahu's political survival uh, hinges on him continuing the war, um, it seems unlikely that that U.S. pressure will convince Netanyahu to change course. But that's where we are right now. So in other words, Biden should end the war, but he can't. Except that it's not his war to end. I mean, they, right. yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. But the U.S. does have considerable leverage, right? Do you think there's a problem there with, I mean, he made a choice shortly after the October 7th hideous attack by Hamas. He went to Israel, hugged Netanyahu, and, and a lot of analysts say he did that to ensure that the donor money stayed on side, but what he didn't calculate or what he didn't notice or predict was that young Democrats would be outraged by the enormous overreaction by the Israelis in terms of you know, carpet bombing Gaza into rubble, and that's costing him uh, with the youth vote, which he needs, and uh, not to mention the Arab-American vote in Michigan. Right. It's certainly true the politics of U.S. support for Israel is changing, um, and, but President Biden, you know, has a very, very long history of, of sort of support for Israel, and, and he seems not to have moved much from his his position. Again, this goes back to, you know, his earliest days in the Senate, decades even. So um, I think that the, the for the United States, the, the one piece of leverage that the United States has um, is whether or not the provision of aid, military assistance to Israel would um, have strings attached in terms of how, you know, restrictions on how those weapons are used. So far, we haven't exercised that authority, but I have seen even some of President Biden's close uh, political allies starting to make that, including you know, many Democrats, starting to make that case explicitly, perhaps motivated by, as you know, the, the political concern that the domestic politics of this are, are fraught for, for Democrats and for Joe Biden. So just in closing then, uh, Christopher Preble, what's your sense then of uh, whether this is a part of a bigger issue, which is the militarization of our foreign policy, because we just have so much military power. And I think we, we're in, what, 85 countries. I just mentioned uh, the graph from the Financial Times uh, that right. has 57,000 U.S. personnel in the Middle East. Is that a part of the problem because the one thing that Democrats and, and Republicans agree on is to throw more money at the Pentagon every year and they, they've just yeah. done this again and the budget's certainly at least a trillion if not more. It's a, it, right. When you count all, all, the, all the money that's spent on national security, uh, it is in excess of a trillion dollars. Uh, right. I, so, I, I, certainly, you know, yeah. I wrote a book about this many years ago, the power problem, where I said, you know, the military power is a problem. When you have a big hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the United States is uh, quick to resort to the use of force because in many respects it's easy, or at least it appears easy. It's easy to use it. It's just not easy to produce the desired effect. And I think we certainly have enough evidence over the last 15 or 20 years of the limited utility of, of U.S. force. And yet um, there, it, it's still there. It's still, it's still there for the, for the president to, to reach for. And again, even a president like Donald Trump, who claimed to want to change course, was was relatively quick to reach for that instrument too. So, so I, I agree with you. I think that you know emphasizing the other tools of American power, including you know diplomacy, trade, economics, culture, those things have been 
underweighted in the U.S. foreign policy toolkit, and we need to rebalance um, to elevate them uh, and and put military force, which has a role to play, uh, put it into its proper place. Well, Christopher Preble, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, sir. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Preble, who's a senior fellow and director of the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program at the Stimson Center. Prior to joining the Stimson Center, he served as co-director of the Atlantic Council's New America Engagement Initiative. And he's the author of four books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous and Less Free, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse, and How We Can Recover. And he co-edited with John Mueller, A Dangerous World, Threat Perception, in U.S. national security, and he is a contributor to a new report at the Stimson Center, Testing Assumptions About U.S. Foreign Policy in 2024. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by